This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome to Tea and Murder, part book club, part interview show, all Agatha Christie. I'm your host, Rebecca Tundy-Norman. I am so excited to have here with me today Kemper Donovan. Kemper is the host of All About Agatha, the podcast on Agatha Christie, of course, and author of an upcoming mystery series, The Ghostwriter Series. Um, All About Agatha was co-founded with Catherine Brobeck, who sadly passed away just over a year ago. And uh, I know it's important to you, Kemper, that we recognize her when we're talking about the podcast. Um, So we just wanted to say that. And uh, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be on another Agatha Christie focused <laughs> I, podcast. I, I feel like I'm at home. <laughs> yeah. Is this your first time on another Agatha Christie podcast or is this something you do fairly frequently? <laughs> you know, there aren't as many Agatha <laughs> yeah. Christie centric podcasts as you think there would be since I there know. are approximately 3 billion podcasts out there right. at this point in right. time. And 3 billion um, Agatha Christie books. <laughs> yes, there are certainly three billion readers. Um, <laughs> there are there is a, a fabulous podcast which I'll just go ahead and shout out right at the top of, of this episode. Uh, besides yours, besides mine, um, which is she done it hosted by Caroline Crampton. And she uh, looks at not just Agatha Christie, but a lot of different writers from the golden age of detective fiction. But there's a lot of Christie on that podcast. And it's a really, really fabulous, well-researched, well-produced podcast. So if anyone listening to this has not yet listened to She Done It, I very much encourage you to do so. Absolutely. And seconded for sure. So it's uh, I definitely agree with you there. And, but you're right. It's like, there's a, it's weird for how popular Agatha Christie is that, you know, there aren't that many podcasts out there on her work. Um, but tell me a little bit about, we'll talk a little bit about how you came to the podcast, your podcast, but how did you come to Agatha Christie in your readership of her? I think I came to Christie the way many people came to Christie when I was a child Yeah, and I was an avid reader um, and I actually remember this moment, um, which is one that that other people, I think, share. Um, I was obsessed with Greek mythology when I was in and around fourth grade. And simultaneous with that Greek mythology obsession, I also started devouring Agatha Christie novels. And I actually think that those two things are related. Mm. Now, having done this Agatha Christie podcast for six years, I think there are so many different reasons why 
Agatha Christie is as popular as she is and as enduring as she is. But I think that some of her books are written on an almost elemental level in the same way that myths are. They're fairy tale like and mythology like. So in the same way that children respond to fairy tales and to mythology, um, I also responded to Agatha Christie when I was nine years old. And she just became a sort of building block of, uh, for my love of literature in general mm. and bridged me over into adult fiction because Christie herself did not consider, um, that she was writing children's fiction. She hated when people said that she wrote for children. So she <laughs> yeah. didn't. I think it's just that a lot of people come to her early on and that's part of the reason why she's so beloved. And now I can, you know, I can, and I will continue to read her for the rest of my life. Yeah. And that rest of your life has led to the All About Agatha podcast. Can you tell us a little bit about like the format of the podcast and, and how you started it with Catherine? Sure. So I knew Catherine through my husband, actually. She and my husband went to college together. So they knew each other uh, for many, many years. And we all lived in Los Angeles. And this was in 2016 that we were having dinner one night and at that point in 2016, there were a lot of podcasts, not as many as there are now, but it was <laughs> it was a format that was becoming popular. Yeah. And somehow we got onto the conversation of podcasting. And my husband and I both said, Catherine, you need to host a podcast because she was always just a very audacious and outspoken and smart person whose opinions were... Um, unpredictable. Like she was one of those people where I couldn't always tell what her reaction to a book or to a piece of uh, news, you know, a current event would be. Mm. And there are very few people like that actually. And, um, yeah. I just remember saying, Catherine, you're so interesting. She also has a very distinctive voice. Mm. And I, I said, you need to host a podcast. And she was like, uh, I don't, I wouldn't really want to do that alone. Maybe I could do it, you know, with someone else. Maybe we could do one. And we, um, had always shared a love, particularly of the Poirot series starring David Suchet, uh, which adapted all of uh, the Poirot stories of Agatha Christie's. And once we started talking about, oh, maybe the two of us should do a podcast, it didn't take us long to figure out that we should do one all about Agatha Christie. That's so fun. And in terms of the format, how did you come up with that? Because it's a very specific format for how you, you rank the books. Yes. So we decided um, before we started it that we would have a structure. Mm -hmm. And the structure is basically that we went through every single book of Agatha Christie's in publication order. Um, so starting with The Mysterious Affair at Styles and ending with, well, we, we actually went a little bit out of publication order at the very end of the uh, of the podcast. So we should have ended with sleeping murder, but we actually ended with curtain. Mm -hmm. Um, which is a great way we to went end in public. Though. It is. Well, and that was, that, it, that was Catherine's argument. Actually, Catherine and I had a long standing argument <laughs> about whether or not we should stick with publication order. And I am a pedant at heart. So I was like, <laughs> we have to do this the way we've been doing it. Sleeping murder was the last one to be published. So with sleeping murder, we must end. And she was like, no, curtain is like a fabulous ending, uh, for the podcast. Mm -hmm. So anyway, um, in addition to going through all of her books in publication order, we also decided to rank them. So this was, you know, meant to be a very, uh, detail oriented, granular, nerdy kind of an endeavor from the very beginning. And it very much was, <laughs> um, and after kind of discussing the book in an episode, um, the final, uh, part of the episode would basically be the rankings portion where we would go through six different categories, plot mechanics, plot credibility, series long characters. So usually detectives and, uh, other characters surrounding the detective mm -hmm. book, specific characters setting and tone, which is a bit of a catch all category uh, for readability and just how much we liked the book. Yeah. And then our final category was, um, to do with depictions stuck in their time, which is kind of the phenomenon of reading Agatha Christie decades and decades after she wrote many of these books. Mm -hmm. And sometimes uh, the jarring effect uh, of the way that she 
wrote about certain aspects of humanity. We felt yes. that was it was very important to address mm -hmm. that issue because that's something that um, I think everyone grapples with uh, in very different ways yes. when they read Agatha Christie with very different responses. So we incorporated that as well um, and assigned number values to all six of those categories and in that way came up with an overall score and were able to uh, rank all of the books as we went through the canon. And as you already referenced, Catherine did very tragically pass away uh, at the end of 2021. We had done 60 of the 66 books at that point. Wow. So for the last six books, I was uh, fortunate enough to have co-hosts come on and uh, discuss the book and do the rankings with me because at that point, Catherine and I had uh, really built a community mm -hmm. um, of not just listeners to the podcast, but Agatha Christie scholars and authors who loved Agatha Christie. And they really came to my rescue um, and helped me. And in the final book, Curtain, which was, you know, I, Catherine won that argument. I, I felt <laughs> like I had to, quote unquote, let her win that argument since she was no longer here yeah. <laughs> to, uh, you know, to, to plead her case. Um, I also final think she's book right, <laughs> to be I, honest. You know what? The funny thing is, I know she's right after having done it. And mea culpa, like she was totally right. But yeah. um, Curtin was co-hosted by her mother, actually, oh, uh, Linda that. Brobeck. And yeah. um, that was, um, you know, I don't even want to call it a full circle moment. It was just a very emotional yeah. um, thing to do. Yeah. And I think it was, I know it was helpful for me. Um, I, and I hope that it was helpful for Linda. I believe it was. And also a lot of listeners, yeah. um, you know, about a year after she passed away to be able to, uh, hear from her mother and, um, see how her family is doing. And they're still very much mourning and, um, I'm still very much mourning and, yeah. um, will be forever. And I think it's, I, I, a secondary, um, sort of purpose of the podcast now post Catherine has been, to honor her and her memory. And just, I think also the idea that when we lose people, um, they don't go away yeah. and we don't have to stop talking about them. Yeah. And it's interesting yeah. because I mean, Agatha Christie's novels are obviously, in a in a way, in a very specific way, focused on death. Mm -hmm. Um, and this is a very different um, experience of death and interaction with death yeah. um, in my personal life with Catherine. But um, that contrast, I think, has also been illuminating and something that I've talked about uh, in the wake of her passing. Yeah, I think that's that's beautiful. And, you know, having listened to the podcast for this specific episode, the book we'll be talking about, which is Secret of Chimneys, and Catherine was obviously hosting with you on that episode, um, she had such a great way of talking about books. And I it's so kind of, um, she was so personable in how she talked about the book, but had such a strong opinion. And as you said, often you two didn't always have the same opinion and I just love listening to her and you together. So, um, it's really great to hear you talk about her that way. And, um, I'm sure your community really appreciates it. Um, I w I'm interested a little bit in the community you talk about because I'm just kind of starting out into this podcasting world and into the Agatha Christie <laughs> universe specifically. And I'm wondering if you were, were you an Agatha Christie expert when you started or were you just a fan who was kind of then moving more into knowing more as you read more and more? The honest answer is that I thought I was an Agatha Christie <laughs> expert. I think I had the hubris um, of, of actually thinking I knew a lot about her. Uh -huh. But now that I know a lot more, uh, speaking with a lot of hubris in, in the present as well, but mm -hmm. I, I do think that I've put in the time yeah. to, to earn that to say uh, yeah, that I know I a lot so. more. <laughs> yeah. But I, I knew so little. So mm -hmm. I would say that I was, uh, you know, a, a casual fan, but an ardent fan, yeah. uh, nonetheless, of Christie. I had pretty much read everything by her. There mm -hmm. were, to be honest, a couple of books as I was covering them for the podcast where I was like, have I read this before? Because I <laughs> thought I read every single one of Christie's 66 books, but maybe I didn't read this one or, you know, I could have forgotten it. There are so right. many. Um, but I had pretty much read everything by her, but I had not thought as deeply about the way that she structures mm. her puzzles mm. and her thrillers. Um, which we'll be talking about. Yeah. And um, yeah. I think the, uh, you know, her craft, I had not yeah. thought about her craft. And also I didn't know that much about her biography. Um, and that's something else that uh, I've tried to bring to the podcast as well. Mm. Uh, you know, the ways in which Christie's own experiences can shed light on what she was writing about because she had a really interesting life. She did. And um, yeah, so I think uh, I've learned a lot. 
in a lot of different ways. <laughs> yeah. I, I feel similarly. And again, I've only been doing this for, you know, I've, I mean, I've been an Agatha Christie reader and fan for a very long time. And I would have considered myself a person who was an expert on her books in the sense that I, I don't, haven't just read them one, once or twice, but m- many of them like, you know, in the tens of times. Um, sure. and, um, but as you say, the more you kind of do this and do the talking and interview experts who have different perspectives and different areas of expertise, uh, you realize how little, you know, or I realized how little I know I should point that finger back at myself. Um, and that's been a really both wonderful and humbling experience to get to learn so much more about something I thought I knew a lot about. And it is, isn't that the way with everything? Mm-hmm. I think it's, you don't, you don't really start learning about something until you realize how little you know yeah. about it. Yeah. That's right. And there's even little things where, um, now I, you know, in episodes that we've already recorded, I think I remember I said something on death on the Nile about, um, I thought that Agatha Christie made Poirot seasick as a way to annoy him, but it turns out that she was actually a person who got terribly seasick. <laughs> so it was like a connection point. Um, so, so that for me, when I read that in, in one of the biographies I was then reading, I thought, oh, I, I got that totally wrong, you know? Um, and I just love moments like that where, where, uh, I don't know, you just, it unlocks something else in your knowledge. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so you have written or are writing, uh, mystery books of your own. Are you Christie influenced? Tell us a little bit about that. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> one of the one of the great things about um, doing the podcast is that we do pepper, uh, you know, our episodes with interviews uh, with contemporary mystery authors. Yeah. And I almost feel like any author who writes mysteries who says they're not influenced by Christie has liars. to be lying. They're liars, right? <laughs> Because again, she's so fundamental to the genre. Yeah. You know, at this point, it's it, 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 she's inescapable. Yeah. I think and undeniable as an influence. Love her or hate her, and most people love her or at least love some aspect of her yeah. or certain aspects of her. So that's been great too. You know, to interview people like Tana French. Um, who loves Agatha Christie yeah. and Sophie Hanna, who we've yeah. had on many times, and um, who I believe you're also you also spoke that's with. right. Yeah, we talked about Evil Under the Sun with Sophie, so that's a great episode. Oh, Sophie loves Evil yeah, Under the does. Sun. Yeah, she does. She loves it. She thinks that we rated Evil Under the Sun way too low. She's very annoyed. With I know. Our, with where we talk, Evil we Under the Sun all is about in it. our ranking. <laughs> yeah. Um, I love Evil Under the Sun too. Uh, anyway, but yeah, it's um. So I was undoubtedly, I think. I think I would have been influenced by Christie even if I had tried to write a mystery that had nothing to do with an Agatha Christie mystery or didn't resemble a Christie mystery, yeah. but actually yeah. very intentionally tried to write a Christie-like mystery as well. And I used some of her tricks almost as, uh, you know, an inside joke sort of a thing mm. that I think any listener of, of uh, my podcast, my and Catherine's podcast, it feels very strange to say my podcast, yeah. but then it also feels strange to say our podcast. So I find that awkward. Just yeah. want to point that out. Yeah. Um, but I think um, any any listeners of the podcast will be able to pick up on them and hopefully get a little chuckle from some of the Christy tropes yeah. that I've thrown in there. And um, yeah, I mean, I, I just absolutely love Agatha Christie. And I had actually written a novel prior to doing the All About Agatha podcast. And it has some elements of suspense, but it's not a mystery. And I was writing a second novel uh, during the first year or two of the podcast. And it's very cliched to have a hard time writing your sophomore novel. uh, Because, you know, the magic of getting your first novel published has worn off. And now you feel like you have to do it all over again. And (laughs) I had just, you know, I I, I went through all of the, I think, usual trials and tribulations uh, that an author does writing a second novel. And finally, I turned around after banging my head against a wall with this other manuscript and realized I put in so many hours a week talking about researching, you know, reading, analyzing Agatha Christie. Why don't I just write a mystery? Yeah. (laughs) And it really hadn't occurred. It it took years for this to occur to me. And it wouldn't have occurred to me if I hadn't done the podcast. And I'm not going to say that writing this mystery was easy because writing's never easy. That's another thing. Anyone who's like, oh, it just flowed out of me. It's like, no, you're a liar. (laughs) (laughs) If it flowed out of you, you might want to shove it back in, buddy. Like it probably wasn't that good. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Might want to take a a second look at it. Um, But... 
uh, I think that um, the it, it made sense. There was there there was a sort of organic quality to writing this mystery where I was like, oh, okay, this feels like what I should be doing yeah. now. And um, yeah, and then I was able to, you know, I was able to, uh, lucky enough to find a publisher. It was, the whole journey was a slog, but um, it, it, there was a lot of joy in it. And that is really all due to Agatha Christie. That's so <laughs> fantastic. Can you tell us anything about like release dates or anything like that or not yet? So it will be published um, in February of 2024, okay. so about a year from now. Yeah, uh, kind of a long window. Um, the publisher is Kensington, who publish a lot of mysteries, yeah. uh, especially in the U.S., and um, I'm hoping that it will be uh, I'll be able to get in other territories, especially the UK, since unsurprisingly, there you know the podcast has a lot of listeners in the UK, mm-hmm. and. Um, yeah, it's uh, I'm I'm very excited for that rollout, and uh, you know I think between then and now it's just going to be about uh, figuring out promotion and and all of that. I mean, there's a whole you know machine behind uh, the the publishing industry, which is something that Agatha Christie uh, dealt with, and uh, one of the reasons why her letters to her uh, longtime agent Edmund Cork are as entertaining as they are because. She was often very displeased with things that were going on <laughs> yeah. uh, surrounding the publication of her book. She had a lot of opinions, and she was um, an astute businesswoman when it came to her her own career. Absolutely. Well, congratulations. I can't wait for February 2024. That's very exciting. Thank yeah. you. And so I think it's a good time to dive into the book we're going to talk about today, which is, unfortunately, The Do Secret of to? Chimneys. <laughs> <laughs> I am extremely pissed at you for choosing this book, but uh, <laughs> we're still going to talk about it. Um, so I'm just going to give a little brief historical note to put it in its place, which is anywhere but here. Um, so The Secret of Chimneys was published in 1925, right after The Man in the Brown Suit uh, and Poirot Investigates, and before The Murder of Roger Ackroyd. It is a standalone adventure thriller mystery novel and uh, the first time we meet Superintendent Battle. Uh, Battle goes on to appear in a number of other books, including The Seven Dials Mystery, which is also a standalone, and um, other Poirots, including Cards on the Table, Murder is Easy, and uh, Towards Zero. He's also mentioned in Mrs. McGinty's Dead, and he's alluded to in The Clocks as the father of Colin Lamb. So he is definitely a recurring character uh, in the Poirot universe in the way of, you know, Hastings, Jap, George, or Miss Lemon. The Secret of Chimneys was pretty favorably reviewed at the time that it came out, much to my surprise, but uh, more recently is not considered one of Christie's best works. Um, Christie historian Dr. John Curran, who also joined us on this podcast, calls it, quote, enjoyable but preposterous which I think is a very generous interpretation of it, actually. Um, It's generally considered to be one of the best of Christie's early thrillers, which is kind of damning with faint praise. And I personally do not like this book, if you can't tell, but let's dive into it. Um, Kemper, would you like to give us a brief, like one minute or so synopsis of The Secret of Chimneys? I would. All right, here goes. (laughs) This is hard because The Secret of Chimneys is... uh, Very complicated. uh, (laughs) Yes, a, a, a tortuous, if not tortuous, if not torturous yeah. <laughs> book. All right, so The Secret of Chimneys is an early thriller of Agatha Christie's in which a whole heck of a lot of stuff happens. <laughs> Too much stuff, you might say. Too much. Um, if I'm being kind, I'd call it a picaresque romp inspired by Antony Hope's The Prisoner of Zenda, mm-hmm. which was a novel Christie loved very much from her childhood. In Christie's book, the fictional hero Antony Cade, see what she did there, uh, becomes embroiled in a mystery that involves two murders, two impersonations, two top-secret written documents, and a healthy dose of romance. And without getting too specific so as to avoid spoilers, by the end of the book, two of the large cast of characters inhabiting the titular country estate of Chimneys have been proven guilty of the murders as well as a jewel heist thrown in for good measure, while another two characters have been crowned king and queen of Herzoslovakia, Herzoslovakia. which is a fake... Ah, yes. It's a fake Eastern European country dreamed up by Christie. Mm-hmm. Um, I also feel the need to add that there is a lot of unfortunate xenophobia and anti-Semitism Correct. peppered throughout the story, usually in a misguided attempt at humor, which for me was by far its most problematic aspect. Yeah. I that agree. is my attempt to summarize <laughs> The Secret of Chimneys. That was, you know, you actually made it sound kind of interesting from there. Um, but yes, that that's exactly what happened. It's a lot of stuff. It's a lot of... Um, adventure type of stuff. There's a lot of pluck, which as I've said before, I hate pluck, can't stand it. 
Um, but so you chose this book for us to read because I asked the guests to choose the book. So you did this to us. You, you chose it because you rated it the second lowest on your podcast. So you kind of wanted to give it a rereading and another chance. Um, what did you hope to find with a rereading? So you're right. I chose to, to read this book. I brought this upon myself and you, I am so sorry. <laughs> um, because Catherine and I read this book quite early on in the podcast, since it is her, um, I believe fifth book. It's it very, very early on very early, um, yeah. in the canon. And when we read it, we still weren't even sure if the podcast was going to continue because especially in the beginning, I'm sure you can relate to this, even just the technical, you know, the technicalities of doing a podcast were taking so much time and it was so overwhelming. We were like, oh my God, are we really going to review all 66 of Christie's books? I had just had a baby. Like it was yeah. madness. And um, we were very grumpy reading this book <laughs> because it's not one of Christie's best. And um, I think that uncertainty filtered through in our review of the book okay. on the podcast. It's definitely one of our more negative reviews, deservedly so. I mean, so I have now reread this book after having covered all 66 of Christie's books. The only book that ha was ranked lower is Postern of Fate, which is fairly universally recognized among Christie fans to be her worst book. Yeah. Uh, according to John Curran, it shouldn't have even been published. It's a travesty that it was published. Oh, no. Um, I wanted to read it because it had become a running joke that Catherine and I were going to reread it when we were done mm -hmm. because we would get so many responses from listeners saying, no, 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 The Secret of Chimneys is not as bad as you think it is. You have to read it again. You weren't fair to it. Please, please, please reread The Secret of Chimneys. It's, it was shocking wow. how many times this happened. The only other book that got as much um, pleading was Death Comes as the End, which is her oh, book wow. set in Ancient yeah. Egypt. We ranked that really low. I'm also going to have to revisit that one, much okay. to my chagrin. But <laughs> we wanted to start with this one since it is ranked second to lowest. And I have to say, I was hoping to get a slightly sunnier perspective on it. And in some ways, I did. Oh, I think okay. that I think it is preposterous. And it's definitely not even one of her best thrillers. I think that The Man in the Brown Suit, which she published just before this book, is a much better thriller. And mm -hmm. I think in some ways, in a lot of ways, The Secret of Chimneys feels like a retread yeah. of The Man in the Brown Suit and one that's not done as well as the one that she had just put out. Yeah, I agree. So yeah, I agree. It, it's derivative. I mean, it's derivative of The Prisoner of Zenda. Yeah. It's derivative of The Man in the Brown Suit. And then I think she would go on uh, even with Why Didn't They Ask Evans, which is another thriller that I uh, revisited by way of the Hugh Laurie adaptation that right. came out recently right. um, and realized that we had been too harsh on that thriller as well. Okay. I think that one um, is definitely better, yeah, much better. than The <sighs> Secret like of Chimneys. One. Yeah. <laughs> I think most of the thrillers are actually better than The Secret of Chimneys, um, mm. but there are probably a couple of other books that uh, don't function as well that she wrote later on in, in her career, certainly Posturing of Fate, and I think even uh, Passenger to Frankfurt and... Um, uh, elephants can remember. Mm -hmm. Those are all books that, you know, she was writing in, in sort of the sunset of her career. Mm -hmm. We could get into the whole, you know, were her own mental faculties failing at that point. Some people theorize that they were, mm -hmm. but, um, that is certainly not happening in the secret of chimneys. I think no. what you see in the secret of chimneys is someone who's, who's fine tuning and honing her craft yes. and figuring out what she writes well. I'm actually cribbing that from this scholar, Allison Light, who was one of my most exciting interviews that I had on the podcast. She is this um, literary critic uh, who wrote about Agatha Christie in 1990, oh, actually, wow. um, or it might have even been 89. It was either in the late 80s or early 90s. Mm -hmm. And she's one of the first people, uh, one of the first serious scholars to take Christie seriously yeah. and to write about her. And she talks about how, you know, Christie was a modernist. She actually was. And something that all modernists writing in the early 20th century had to do was to figure out their craft and to experiment. Yes. I mean, that's what modernists yeah. did. They experimented. And, and I think that these 20s thrillers, she's taking a genre that was incredibly popular mm -hmm. because she did always want to make money as well. Mm -hmm. She always had an eye on commerciality when she was writing. Mm -hmm. um, and 
she was trying her hand at it. And I think that The Secret of Chimneys makes a lot more sense uh, within the context of the books being published when it was published in the mid 20s. Um, And it doesn't make a whole lot of sense for a lot of different reasons (laughs) reading it. Yeah. In 2023, yeah. you know, almost literally 100 years later, yeah. there are all the depictions stuck in their time, which I think kind of speak for themselves. Yes. But um, I think that the pluck and the madcap kind of rompy uh, atmosphere, it's so forced. Yeah, And right. I think that that would have been less blatant uh, if you were reading it in 1925 because there were so many other books similar to it that I mean that that's not really a compliment right I'm basically (laughs) saying that it was so derivative that it would have at least fit into its place better when it was published uh, you know in a contemporary setting than it does now but um I think that there are actually um there are a lot of tricks that you can see her using in this book that she would then go on to use you know we have the notion of never underestimate the help yeah she actually uses that in two different ways in this book, she has a really clever double bluff mm-hmm. motif um, as to who this shadowy person, King Victor, is. Mm-hmm. She always in these thrillers, there has to be someone who's unmasked at the end of the of the book. You know, in the secret of adversary, in the secret adversary, it's Mister Brown, mm-hmm. um, and then here it's King Victor, right. and. Um, you know, the, the tricks that she uses, I think, to obfuscate who King Victor is are very clever and we can see them using her to much greater effect uh, very soon after. I mean, and it's so significant that she wrote The Secret of Chimneys and the very next year, The Murder of Roger Ackroyd came out. I mean, it's one of her best books. I yeah. mean, it's one of the best mysteries ever right. written. It's, right. you know, we rank it at number three mm-hmm. among all of her books. Some people rank it at number one, and I would yeah. support that. It's yeah. it's brilliant. It is absolutely a brilliant conception, but yeah. also, most importantly, a brilliant execution yeah. of that concept. Yeah, so I think you can see her um, figuring out what she's good at and figuring her way through this whole writing thing yeah. that was still fairly new to her in this book. And that's fascinating. So I think if you read it in that spirit, mm-hmm. you might actually get some more appreciation out of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly than I did on my, <laughs> my first reread, my re reread yeah. was a lot better than my reread. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I completely agree. And I, I actually have always found it interesting that um, chimneys came out after the man in the brown suit because the man in the brown suit and chimneys are not only stylistically but also plot wise very similar and um and i don't particularly like the man in the brown suit for a lot of reasons but it's a much more enjoyable book and it's a much better book in my opinion um and so for me that was all it's interesting because as you say one of the great things about christy is she wrote so many books that you can when you read them you can actually kind of track the way that she is figuring out who she is as a writer. Um, and for me, it's very interesting that the one, w- like I would have, have expected the other to come first, you know, chimneys to come first and then man in the brown suit, because it's, it's such a kind of more elevated version of this, basically the same plot. Um, but I, but I, I agree with you. I think I, I always toggle back and forth because I, want to talk about Christie's work as a whole. And I, you know, you have to read everything, but I also feel like we can just not like things. Like we can just be like, well, Mm -hmm. I just didn't like it and I don't want to have to go back to it. And that's, for example, how I feel about like all the Tommy and Tuppence books. I like simply don't reread them. Um, it's actually also how I feel about like, and then there were none. I never reread it. Um, I, I reread it for this podcast and hadn't reread it in years. And I know you ranked it as number two, and I know that people consider it one of her best works. And I, you know, I understand in terms of like the structure of it. It's a brilliant book. I just don't enjoy reading it um, mm-hmm. for, for whatever reasons. For, I can, you know, we can get into it, but that's a different podcast. Um, so I, I always toggle between these two things of kind of diving into it for it's the literary value of, you know, exploring her work and then also being like, well, I'm allowed to just not like this. <laughs> Uh, where, yeah. where do you sit within that? Because you really had to read every single one and then rank them. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. 
$45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. That's why Christy, I think, lends herself to a, a ranking experiment mm. like what Catherine and I did because yeah. she's a writer who is brilliant. She's a genius. She you know, that's the ultimate answer. I mean, it's so funny when people say, like, why is Christy so popular? And, you know... <laughs> Well, because she's a genius, right? I mean, she she had to have been to write as many brilliant books as she did. But then she wrote books that weren't brilliant. And of course, this is all subjective. And, and that's too, you know, we're trying to impose objectivity here on an, something that's inherently subjective. Right. But I think most people who have read Christie widely have books where they say, oh my God, this is one of my favorite books. This is, you know, I, I just, I, I love this more than I ever expected to love a mystery, mm-hmm. right? It's like one of their favorite mysteries. And then other books where they're like, what? Right. What was that about? Right. And that's so fascinating. And yeah. there aren't a lot of authors that are like that. Most authors, you're either like, yeah, pretty much like everything they did or pretty much don't like everything right. they did. But to have that range as, as she really does, because she wrote as much as she did, yeah. um, yeah is fascinating, which is why it, yeah, it's so interesting that the same author wrote The Secret of Chimneys and then, you know, a year later, The uh, Murder of Roger Ackroyd was published, at least. That's one of the other things I've learned after doing uh, this podcast for as long as I have. Published and write, you know, the writing of a manuscript and the publication of that manuscript are sometimes in no way have, you know, um, any the one anything to do with the other because she was such a fast writer. And especially in in the 20s and um, the 30s, she published sometimes three books in a year. And it's a little it's very unclear because her notes are a bit of a mess. That's what John Curran, you know, did to Mm -hmm. brilliant effect in his Agatha Christie secret notebooks. He tried to work out as much as he could, you know, when she was doing what what she was doing, right. but, um, right. it's, uh, it's always unclear when exactly she was writing, but even so it had to have been pretty close together. Right. And the fact that she could do the secret of chimneys and then do the murder of Roger Ackroyd, um, is just so interesting. And I think contrasting the two of them and contrasting all of these different books, um, you actually gain a greater appreciation for the brilliant ones also. Right. Yeah. And I, and I, and that's certainly has happened. I mean, I would say, and then there were none. I think it makes sense that you don't like it as much because it's a very unchristy like book. Mm. It's not very Agatha Christie ish. It, it, there's a starkness, a brutality yeah. Yeah. to that book. That is a nihilism basically to yeah. that book that is yeah. unlike anything else she wrote. And that's part of, that's part of why it's so powerful because if you read that book within the context of everything else, you're like, Oh my God, <laughs> she was mad. Where did this come <laughs> yeah. from? You know, like, how did you do this? Yeah. It, it, it's shocking that yeah. she was able to pull that off. Um, uh, Stuart Turton, who was the first episode of this podcast, uh, had a theory that was the book he chose. And his theory about it was that, um, it was Christie's way of doing like an evil version of all of her main characters. So like Emily Brent is an evil Miss Marple, Justice Wargrave is an evil Poirot, et cetera, et cetera. You can <laughs> kind of find like um, what Anthony Mardson is an evil Hastings. Um, and he like really made the case for it. And I'd never thought of it that way, but I thought it was pretty brilliant. <laughs> That's really interesting. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. The other thing I'll say, I'll say, and it's just a um, slight quibble with with something you said earlier, mm. which is, which someone I'm basically heading off to the past. Someone uh, contacting you as I have been contacted <laughs> so many many times uh, for for any minor inaccuracies and things like that on the podcast. This is the first superintendent battle book. Yes. Um, and actually that's something I also appreciated even more, um, reading it Mm -hmm. for, for this episode. Um, but battle actually went on to be in, he certainly is in cards on the table, which is also a book that Poirot is featured in as well as Ariadne Oliver and Colonel race. It's kind of like a super band. I know they like all get together. (laughs) It's the Avengers. It's really fun. Yeah. But then, um, uh, Toward zero and murder is easy are not Poirot books. They're they're just superintendent battle books. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, so he's just in, it's, it's just battle. They're just um, battle. So in, a, right. in a way there actually is like a little minor collection of battle books, even mm. though he's such a non-present, but that's very intentional on Christie's part. I actually quite like him. I think there's a lightness of touch um, in battle yeah. as a detective character that's unusual in Golden Age Mysteries and, and unusual in Christie. And I appreciate him, I think, uh, yeah. among yeah. his more bombastic <laughs> compatriots, uh, especially Poirot. But even Miss Marple, she herself isn't bombastic, but she's such a larger-than-life presence. I like the fact that we have battle within the Christie-verse. I agree. I, I really like battle. I like how she describes him. Um, I like the idea that uh, still waters run deep. Um, I think that really comes across in battle more so than probably any other detective that she has. Yeah. Um, and he also provides a great contrast to Jap, um, who is like, I think can be quite annoying um, and like funny and fun and a little bit silly. Um, and, and battle obviously doesn't have that quality, but he does do like a raised eyebrow very well. Um, so I think she imbues him yeah. with a lot of like very British um, characteristics and actually gives him a really dry humor that um, I think her humor is often overlooked, but um, in, in general. But I think he occasionally has some moments where he just says something and you can just hear him saying it under his breath. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I like Battle as well very much. Yeah, he's, um, um, I think that the, the humor also in Christy, that's one of the other answers as to why does Christy endure as much as she does. And it's something that um, if you only know Christy by way of adaptations, mm -hmm. which many people do and yeah. which is fine, I'm not yeah. saying that that's an illegitimate way to encounter Christy, but I think sometimes the humor in the books is, is uh, you know, alighted by the adaptations just because there's not as much of a place for them on the screen as opposed to on the page. But Christy is pretty consistently funny. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. That was something else also that I, I was inspired by when I wrote my mystery because I wanted mm -hmm. it to have a lot of humor. Um, and, you know, it's why I think Ryan Johnson with Glass Onion and Knives Out, yes, I mean, he is really so the true inheritor of Agatha Christie. And he is very vocal about that, that, you know, he's he uh, that he's inspired directly by Christie yeah. with, with these movies. And that's what Christie was doing. I mean, I think people sometimes also, especially if they only know the David Suchet series, which again was how I got to my podcast with mm -hmm. Catherine. So I love the Suchet series, but um, if you only know the Suchet series, then you think that Christie is set in the mid thirties right. and is, right. you know, is basically frozen in time. Mm. Um, and you might think that if you only watch the Marples, any of the Marple series as well, cause they're, they too are, are pretty much frozen in time. And that's yeah. because of, you know, production values basically, and, and not wanting to have to reset, um, a series and, and giving it a, a sort of consistent look and feel. But Christie was always writing for her own present. And that very much changed because she was writing for 50 years. Yeah. So that too, I think, and, and that I think is something that we can get from The Secret of Chimneys, almost on an anthropological level. It's pretty fascinating to think, okay, this was this was a book that was, if not popular, you know, that that did well mm -hmm. um, in the 20s. And this is what people liked to read. It might not have been how people actually acted, <laughs> but uh, I at least I hope not. Um, <laughs> but that's just quite a different thing from what Christie would write as she was doing her puzzle mysteries in the 30s. And then, mm -hmm. you know, something like Endless Night, which right. is very much of its time in the late 60s right. and has a sort of uh, almost horror horror movie-ish darkness to it. Mm -hmm. So that too, I think is just what makes the comparison, the, the, the compare and contrast exercise fascinating because the, the books are just so different, um, as to tone and setting as well. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I, you know, we've talked a little, you talked about a bit about battle and, you know, one of the other characters that stands out to me in this book is Virginia Rebel. Um, and as I've said previously, I, because like you love her, right? <laughs> I uh, not a fan, not a huge fan. But you know what I what I find frustrating about a character like Virginia, um, which is the same frustration I have with Tuppence, the same frustration I have with Anne Bedingfeld, is the idea of like pluckiness is essentially a characteristic that only exists within the male gaze. Like people aren't plucky, women aren't plucky. Like they only exist in pluckiness in that kind of like some to be looking at them and it's the same with like demureness or hysteria like there's similar qualities to me um and so for that reason those characters never land for me as grounded because the actions they take have nothing to do with how a real person 
would act. And like just that, you know, that really the first time we meet Virginia Revel and she gets blackmailed and she like enjoys the experience so much that she decides to just go along with it. Like that for me was the moment where I was like, my suspension of disbelief no longer, like I've, I've reached my limit for like how I can enjoy this in suspending my disbelief because I love madcap, but like it, it went beyond that to the point where I was like, this isn't even fun. It doesn't make sense to me anymore. Do you, do you, did you have that experience at all? Cause I, I mean, in, when you talked about the, the book in your podcast, I think Catherine had a similar perspective. You were a little bit more generous with your perspective. Yeah, I, I do agree with it. I think that if suspension of disbelief has to go to character in addition to plot, mm -hmm. that's a really tough pill to swallow <laughs> yeah. as a reader. And usually it doesn't with Christy. And yes, on, exactly. on that fr uh, first podcast episode, because I, I also listened to that in preparation mm -hmm. to remember what we said. <laughs> what did I say? In so many yeah. years. Um, we did a lot of comparing it to The Man in the Brown Suit because we had just read The Man in the Brown Suit right. since we were going in publication order. And I think that Anne Bedingfeld in The Man in the Brown Suit, I'm sure she too annoys you because she, she also does. is a very plucky character. But and I and I believe Catherine felt the same way about this. I find Anne Bedingfeld so much more convincing solely because she's the narrator. Yeah. So we at least have this and and Christy, by the way, almost never did that. She only has two first person female narrators, mm -hmm. Anne Bedingfeld in The Man in the Brown Suit and Amy Leather in, in Murder in Mesopotamia. That's right. Both uh, are two of my favorite narrative voices, mm. actually, in the wow. entire canon. But I think that Anne Benningfeld is so much more convincing because we're inside of her head uh, from the start of the book. And even though you can still be irritated by her, I think it's easier to believe her yes. for that reason. Yeah. Um, and I think some of the other, you know, I I don't hate Tommy and Tuppence as much as you do. Before <laughs> before I did the podcast, I did. Okay. I definitely was like, oh, the Tommy and Tuppences. But then... As I was reading them more closely, I mean, the fact that they age um, pretty sure. much with Christy is sure. interesting. And I think sure. there's some interesting sure. push and pull going on with Christy's personal life mm. um, and her depictions of Tommy and Tuppence through the years. And we just don't get that with any of the other characters. But I completely understand being annoyed by Anne Bedingfeld and even by Emily Trefusis in uh, The Sitterford Mystery and people like that. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that Virginia Revel is one of the least convincing. And I agree with you. I mean, it's that blackmail thing. What does that even mean to right? enjoy the experience of being blackmailed? How? Like, right. what? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's it, it's so absurd. And um, yeah, there's just, there's nothing that grounds it. Because I, we, also we've like, we barely know her. So we don't know her to be mm -hmm. like an adventure taker or someone who's self-destructive or like we, there's just nothing there to kind of ground what she's doing, um, yeah. in any like history of the character and not, not that, I mean, I suppose you either buy it or you don't. And I just like that, that scene for me, I was like, oh God, you know, you, you get to like, because, and you speak about this in your, in your podcast as well. There's a lot of prologue in this book, the first like 50 or so pages you're just hearing about backstory and um, you haven't even gotten to chimneys yet. Um, and so you kind of, you get through to that point and then this is like kind of the big scene that leads towards chimneys. And I was like, oh my God, <laughs> Nope, I'm out. I'm out. I'm out. I'm out. And well, and you know, and the, the funny thing of course was not, I have of course read this book before and then I read it again because we had a podcast planned and then it was canceled because I think, did I, did my family get COVID? Something happened. And so then I had to read it again before the podcast oh, again, no. just, you know, cause I wanted to make sure I had all the information. And I just thought like, I am just, this is a self-destructive behavior to have to read this three times. But, um, I'm so sorry that you no. had to read it two times. I look, by the way, the first time it was rescheduled, the, our conversation, I, cause I was going to read it just before okay. I hadn't read it yet. <gasps> good. So good I, on luckily you. I was good only, on yeah, I yeah. only had to reread it, uh, once. That was but very smart. I, I mean, I, I, I think that's an important point. I'm glad you brought that up. The fact that this book takes a long time, uh, to get off the ground. Yeah. Um, yeah. we don't, yeah, we don't get to chimneys until about page 100 and it's a 300 ish page book. Right. That's ridiculous. Right. And Christy almost always had fantastic beginnings, fantastic hooks yes. for her books. It's yeah. very, very unusual for a book of hers to begin badly. 
if I'm being super generous, I will say I think the second half of The Secret of Chimneys is much better mm-hmm. than the first half. It, it gets going. You kind of, it's like a ball rolling down a hill. Like it, you know, you get some momentum going. Yeah. So you're like, okay, I'm at least with you now. But those the, those first 50 to 100 pages are really not good. And the only <laughs> other book that I think um, uh, where I had a similar experience is they came to Baghdad and Mm. that plucky heroine, Victoria Jones, similar enough to Virginia Revel that I always get them mixed up in my head. (laughs) Um, I believe her name is Victoria Jones. I think you're right. Uh, Those two, um, I think, are my, by far my least favorite Mm. of the plucky heroines. Um, You know, there's a, there's Hillary Craven in Destination Unknown, who's actually one of my favorites because the hook for Destination Unknown in the beginning is quite good and quite gripping um, and I think sympathetic. But yeah, here you're just like, you know, you're in Africa. There's some obnoxious guys basically uh, who Yeah, like bros. They're like, they're like colonial bros. Colonial bros. That's, that's exactly who they are. Um, I wasn't captivated by them. I wasn't captivated by Virginia Revel. And spoiler, you know, Anthony Cade and Virginia Revel are our two romantic leads right. who we're supposed to, you know, be really invested in. And that never happened. And that's a big problem. And I think all of the other characters who are populating chimneys are cartoony at best. Yeah. And yeah. usually with Christie, the plot is humming along quite nicely. And even if it's not, she's doing something interesting with the characterization mm-hmm. or the setting of the book. Um, and here she's not. The other insight I think that I had when I read this that I didn't have at the time, now being at the end of the whole canon, is that I think Christy tends to be on her shakiest ground when she sets a book in England um, that is populated by a lot of non-English people. Yes, so true. And that actually doesn't happen very often because what she often does is she has her travelogue yes. books, right? So, you know, Death on the Nile, Murder in Mesopotamia, et cetera, et cetera. And when her English characters are on the shifting sands of, you know, staying in a hotel or being on a boat going down the Nile or whatever, there it's okay. And she'll still have a bunch of cringeworthy uh, right. moments of depiction stuck in their time, which uh, to be clear, I'm not judging her for. I just think they have to be acknowledged and dealt with uh, I totally um, as agree. a reader. Completely but agree. she, those books end up acquitting themselves pretty well. There are very few books where, and then most books that are set in England only deal with white English people. Right. Uh, of varying classes often, or, you know, they're often of the middle class actually, but this is a rare book that is set in England that has a lot of non-English characters. And the only other book that I can think of and compare it to is Hickory Dickory Dock, Mm. which we also ranked extremely low because it's one of the most difficult books to read. Um, I think from a 21st, from my 21st century perspective, I, I was wincing practically on every page, Mm. even though I think she was very well intentioned. She was trying to create a cast of characters of, you know, the, the, these multinational students who were coming from Africa and India and the Caribbean and who were graduate students and cultured. And she had the best of intentions, but it just does not come off very well. And they're very unconvincing and very cartoony. And I think we have the same thing here with like Boris, who is the Herzoslovakian, um, uh, servant who is compared to a dog multiple times and just the paternalism, you know, with which he is described. And again, the anti-Semitism. there's a character named Herman Isaacstein who's almost never called by his proper name. And it's supposed to be so, so, so funny that they call him all of these different things, I know, including they, nosy, I believe right, at yeah. one point, it's just awful. Yeah. Um, so that I think is another reason why this book acquits itself, um, uh, a lot less successfully mm. than many a Christie. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you, and I also agree with what you said earlier, which is that the second half is an easier read and is more enjoyable than the first. And and there are some things that no matter whether I like the book or the plot or the characters or not, there are some things that Agatha Christie just does so well. Um, for me, I love how she describes houses. I just I adore the way she describes certain rooms. And, um, for me, that's like such a treat and she does it really well in this book. She talks about chimneys. She talks, I think at one point about like the way the light falls in a particular room. That's a really charming scene. Um, so you can, I can always find something because I, I do just like her style. Um, and her dialogue is always good. I mean, she's, 
and that and that's the reason why I'm I I believe I, I'm actually going to do an, an episode on the podcast in which I in which I reconsider Secret of Chimneys as well. So if you haven't gotten enough Secret of Chimneys, I'll be doing a Secret of Chimneys uh, centered episode too. But I think it certainly deserves to be um, ranked higher than those later career Christies when hmm. she wasn't firing on all cylinders and the macro structure of the book suffered and also the micro elements such as the dialogue mm. um which in these early christies i mean it is just sp- like sparking you know like even though we might not be convinced by virginia and antony as characters or mm-hmm. care about their romance because they don't seem like people their dialogue is, is spicy yeah they've and got some banter right? entertaining yeah and she just she could do that so well, and yeah. I always appreciate that. And the I just have to add, because you mentioned setting, one of my favorite moments in this book, actually, is that when we first come upon Chimneys, she... She has, you know, from her third person narrative perspective, she says something like, I don't have I don't have the passage in front of me, but she says something like, um, well, you know, chimneys has has been written up in historic registers and there are pictures of it everywhere. And basically, if you want to, you know, find out what chimneys looks like, you can go look it up. So I'm not going to describe (laughs) it. So a description won't be necessary. And it's but then through the course of the book, she does go on to describe room, you know, specific rooms and very much, I think, to give you a a sense of place. Yeah, um, quite a effectively and quite concisely, um, which is something that, you know, other authors uh, don't do as well. You know, I love P.D. James. I love Daphne du Maurier. But sometimes you're reading those descriptive passages, uh, you know, about flowers in front of a house or (laughs) the shape of a column. And you're (laughs) like, could we get could we get on with the mystery? I do, too. I mean, it it depends, you know, but it's almost a little bit Austin like. I mean, Jane Austen also had uh, no uh, sort of. you know, she 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 didn't want to spend a lot of time, yeah. I think, describing yeah. scenery. Yeah. You know, she she had no patience for that. Yeah. But um, yeah. I think, uh, yeah, Christy, you know, does actually set uh, the story at Chimneys um, extremely well. Mm. And also, fun fact, by the way, you know that there is a theatrical adaptation oh, I didn't. of this book okay. that she wrote. She wrote it. Uh, probably in the late 20s, and it was supposed to uh, be uh, staged in the early 30s, and it never made it okay. to the stage. And it was sort of discovered or rediscovered um, in the late uh, or really the early 21st century and first put on for the first time ever, I believe, in 2003 oh, in wow. Canada. Oh, so right. There is, this and is, she Dr. Curran spoke about this. He went to go see it, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Yes. He did go to see it. Yeah. That's right. He's to, I, yeah. he has told me that story as well. Yeah. And I was very jealous of him. Like, God, I would have loved to <laughs> go to the debut of a, an Agatha Christie play that's right. never, you know, right. seen a stage before, but, um, she changed the murder also a little okay. bit in the play. But as far as I can tell, she was really just trying to streamline the novel because it's so overstuffed. <laughs> right. You would have incident. to. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there are, there are certain adap- stage adaptations of her novels in which she did change the murderer, or right. she would change certain things, such as and then there were none, an appointment with death. But um, this, to me, I took a quick look at the play script before coming on this episode because yeah. I, I wanted to yeah. know for myself. It really just looks like she was trying to streamline things. Okay. So I'm not sure. I, I, don't, I think if you didn't love Chimneys the book, I don't know if you need to run out and see the the Secret of Chimneys the okay. theatrical Fair adaptation. Enough. Um, but I, I love just going back quickly to what you said about how she kind of, she says like, there's so much about chimneys. I don't need to explain it to you. Um, that's something that she does quite a lot with more technical stuff. I've noticed where she'll go here, the conversation became technical. And that's her way of saying like, I'm not going to tell you what they said (laughs) because it would be way, like way too much for me to research. Um, and the, like every time it happens, which, and it's like quite frequent, um, they always make me giggle a little bit. It's usually like forensics or something to do with guns or, um, something she doesn't yeah. want to like get pinned on her, I guess, <laughs> for not knowing. Or and she gives you the vital information. Right. She always plays fair, right? She gives you the vital information, but she's not going to bore you with technicalities yes. because she's always uh, she always has an eye out for entertainment and for keeping those pages turning. Which, <laughs> with some exceptions, such as the first one hundred pages of this book, <laughs> she usually does quite well. <laughs> Absolutely agree. So, would you say? that if you were perhaps, I don't know, like a casual Agatha Christie fan, is this a book that you'd recommend people read? No. Okay. 
<laughs> agree. Strong agree. Uh, moving on from that. Uh, um, and, and how are you? I can mean, I qualify? Can I no, qualify that qualify. answer? Though? Go ahead. I, 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 it's a hard no only because there are so many other books yeah. that I would recommend before it. I think if you have read all the other books and you haven't read The Secret of Chimneys yeah, at sure. that point, yes, 100%. Like sure. a completist should absolutely read The Secret of Chimneys. And there are a couple of books that might be even more painful <laughs> to read <laughs> other than The Secret of Chimneys. So in that case, I would recommend, but it's it's just because there's such an abundance, yeah. an embarrassment of riches when it comes to Christie that you don't have to go to The Secret of Chimneys. You can, you, you can pick up so many other titles. I agree. I agree. And in terms of the podcast, you've now kind of done the last book. Um, how are you planning? Are you planning to keep going? What's kind of the, what's the agenda with All About Agatha? I'm definitely planning on uh, continuing with the podcast. Yeah. It's been such a joy to build up a community of listeners. Um, and I think moving forward, I'm going to be doing episodes revisiting certain titles, such as revisiting <laughs> The Secret of Chimneys, for example. I'm not going to do that with that many titles. I think a little bit of that goes a long way. Yeah. But there are always um, other authors to interview, and I think just other aspects of Agatha Christie to examine, as you well know. I um, do. It's very easy, I think, to do a podcast. Uh, not easy, but I think it's feasible to do a podcast about Agatha Christie that isn't merely ranking all of her books. Yeah. So in some ways, Rebecca, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm edging in on your territory because now <laughs> I'm becoming just a, a free flowing, you know, uh, freestyle Agatha, Chris, Agatha Christie podcast yeah. without the backbone of this rankings project. But there is, as we said at the, at the start of this conversation, I'm surprised there aren't more of us. I'm sure there will be more of us and I, I welcome yeah. more of us. Cause I think yeah. it's infinite. The amount of, uh, chatter that we can create, uh, about Agatha Christie. So I, just to give you one example, I'm going to do an episode in the next couple of months I'm very excited about that will actually be ranking the murderers. So talking about the murderers in Christie books as opposed to the books themselves. Because there are some books that don't acquit themselves as well as puzzles overall that have a fantastically uh, characterized murderer. Yes. Um, and vice versa. There are, you know, there are other books uh, where the murderer is not so great, even though we might have ranked the book uh, fairly high for other oh, reasons. Wow. And, and that's, that's something such that... That's a great um, idea. I love that. Yeah, that people have responded to. So just, you know, again, I, it's it's not going to be hard for me to um, babble on and on and on <laughs> ad infinitum about Agatha Christie, as you could probably tell from this very conversation. <laughs> but, but I'm exactly the same way. I mean, I basically was just like, can I make a podcast where I just talk to people about Agatha Christie? Like endlessly. And it turns out that there's a lot of people willing to do that with me. Um, so it's yeah. been an absolute joy to get to do yeah. and to hear so many different perspectives. And it sounds like we've talked to like a fair few bit of the same people, because I think it's, um, I wouldn't say it's a small universe, but it's certainly a, there's a kind of a top tier of experts who, you know, you can go to and people who really, um, who really love her work and are experts in her work. And I think that's, what's been so nice is that Sometimes you approach a subject and people who are experts are kind of, there's like a joylessness in the expertise. Mm -hmm. um, that is not the case with Agatha Christie. I have found people who are experts in her work, who have been studying her for decades, still just love reading her books. Um, yep. And that yep. is wonderful. It it starts with a love of Christie and usually a longstanding love from, if not childhood, early adulthood. And I totally agree with you. Yeah. Um, I've never thought about it that way, but it's true. The the academ the world of academia surrounding Agatha Christie is suffused with joy. Yeah. It really is. Yeah. And that's a rare thing. And opinions. And we sat here and talked about a book neither of us really liked that much with a lot of fun and a lot of joy in our hearts. At least there was in mine. Yep. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and that's really And a lot of affection. Yeah. A right? lot of affection. Absolutely. Yeah. For whatever she wrote that I don't like, I mean, A, I'm still going to read it. And B, there's always something to find that I do like. And C, it's okay to not like something and still kind of love her work overall. Um, as you say, that she produced so much that that's possible. It's it's really not possible with that many writers. Um, but she has given us the gift of allowing us to not like her stuff. <laughs> Thanks, she has. Agatha. 
Um, so thank you so much for being here, Kemper. I think, um, this is a great place to say goodbye. Where can, would you like to be found by the people? And if so, where can they find you? So, uh, people can find the podcast Mm -hmm. wherever they listen to podcasts, just search for all about Agatha. It's technically called all about Agatha with Christie in parentheses, Uh just so if people put in Agatha Christie, (laughs) that that it should also, you should also be able to find the podcast. It'll probably be right next to your podcast. (laughs) Um, So you can find the podcast there and then um, you can find uh, the podcast on Twitter at all about the Dame. And we're also on Instagram at all about Agatha. And, um, I'd also, I, I always encourage people just to get in touch with me via email because I find that those are the interactions that, uh, are the most meaningful because you can communicate in longer than, you know, chunks of text or pictures. Yeah. So my email address is all about the dame at gmail.com. If anyone would like to get in touch, please do. Um, because I love talking about Agatha Christie with anyone and everyone. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. And we will have all that information in the episode notes, um, as well as links, um, to the podcast, of course, and to the specific episode where you talk about the secret of chimneys with Catherine. Um, and we'll eventually be putting in the link for your book when it comes out. So we're excited for that. And thank you well, again lovely. for being thank here. You. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much. It's been a joy. Thanks, Kemper. Have a great day. Thank you to our producer, Kate Cruschel, and our sound engineer, Winter Robinson. If you want to support this podcast, you can follow us on Instagram at Tea and Murder. You can rate and review us on iTunes, and you can tell all your friends and even strangers to follow us on your podcast platform of choice. In two weeks, you bring the tea and we'll bring the murder with the body in the library. You can rent it from your local library, buy from your local independent bookseller, or if you need to buy online, we recommend bookshop.org, which supports independent bookstores with every purchase. A link for next week's book can be found in the episode notes. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Tea and Murder. We hope you had a bracing dose of both. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.